session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwin. I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Joining me today is author Dr. Kristen Lee. So won't be taking any calls at the beginning of the show. Very excited to have her on the show. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page, and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But let me introduce our guest for today. Dr. Kristen Lee is an award-winning behavioral science and leadership professor, clinician, researcher, activist, comedian, and author. She has over two decades of clinical experience in outpatient mental health and 13 years of teaching and leadership roles in higher education. She leads the behavior science program at Northeastern University and lives in Boston, Massachusetts, and Providence, Rhode Island, and she's the author of several books, including the one we'll be talking about today, Worth the Risk, How to Microdose Bravery to Grow Resilience, Connect More, and Offer Yourself to the World. Dr. Kristen Lee, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. And also, I should say an extra thank you because we were scheduled for last week on Wednesday, and then uh, I got hit with corona and uh, had to cancel last minute, and I appreciated you being flexible and still making this work. I'm so glad that you're faring well and you're feeling better. Thank you so much. You Actually, maybe later I'll talk about how uh, I was reading the book and going through what I was going through and reaching out to you. Obviously, took some vulnerability to let you know I wasn't feeling well. Uh, we can maybe get to that, but let's start with the book itself, which is really wonderful, highly recommended to everyone out there, worth the risk. Um, you know, this uh, this term microdosing b- bravery, I thought was really a fascinating way of looking at risking or really anything we're doing, which is usually going to happen in small steps versus big ones. But if you could say what was your own motivation or what really uh, inspired you to write this book? I know it's kind of a general question. What What made you want to write this book? Well, I'm glad that I was keeping you company during that phase <laughs> when you were down for the count, for sure. And I think um, for me as a person who studies behavior change and is really interested in what can help us get to a better place, I became really curious about obviously the ways people change. And and to your point, it doesn't happen in flip of a switch Mm -hmm. or in one fell swoop. So I sort of became captivated by this notion of facing courage strategically, you know, a chip, chip away kind of approach, a microdosing approach. Because I think right now we're faced with enormity of all shapes and sizes. You know, the between the pandemic and its aftermath and the great resignation and the condition of the world right now, there's a lot of gravity. And I think our natural instinct is to think we need to do something big to overturn all this. We need yeah. something big to make our mental health better or to make the world better. But what we can see in the science of behavior change and we see um, just there's so many examples in life that it's oftentimes the the quiet gestures, the things that we're working on consistently that add up and have a cumulative effect on our individual and collective well-being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that as a therapist myself, it's something that I recognize 
people are looking for a quick fix and often clients will come in and they've had an issue they've been dealing with for 20, 30 years and they're hoping in a few sessions we might be able to figure it out and usually it is kind of a rude awakening but giving that real the dose of reality that change is possible but it usually takes time and is going to be slow but that makes it more meaningful and real when we we do it in that way and that's something i appreciated about your book was that when we think of risk or bravery or courage they can be scary words that a lot of times people think either i have courage or i don't or bravery is just for the superheroes that do things easily uh, that's not me, but you point by point show these different ways that we can actually recognize it's going to be small steps that we're all capable of, and that's where the real courage lies, and that's where it really shows up is in those um, little steps that we all can take. So it's not something you either have it or you don't. It's basically if you activate it or not or take those actions or not. Mm. Mm. I love how you put that, and, and indeed, I think like you, I've been inspired by those I've served in my therapy room mm -hmm. and then have gone on to serve in my classroom is seeing kind of that burning human question. Can people change? How is it possible? And, you know, of course, the cognitive dissonance of I know what I want to do or what I should do, but I'm having difficulty getting that momentum. And so that's something I've been curious about for a long time, but also, you know, hold that firm belief in the power of our spirit and our ability to foster change mm -hmm. when we do it strategically and then, of course, within community. You know, having people who believe in us and that can encourage us to align our values to our behaviors. Yeah, and um, I really liked how in the book you, rather than calling them chapters, you called them sessions, which is kind of like therapy sessions, and in each <laughs> one there's reflections and things to think about ourselves, and then actions and things we can get into. And before you get into those sessions, you uh, talk about a what-if life which is versus a what-is life. Uh, maybe you could talk about that distinction. I found that really interesting. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to unpack that with you. Of course, you sure. like the sessions in session, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I know my audience. Well, it's definitely the clinician in me and then the educator, like, and I really wanted this experience um, to be one that would generate conversation, um, not just sort of like, here's your, you know, I, like you, I have a disdain for pop psychology or things that just aren't weighted in science, but I wanted people to have opportunity to think about these things, to assess their relationship to risk and work through them. Um, and, you know, to answer your question about the what is life versus the what if life, this in psychology, you know, we could think of it as locus of control. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people might think of it as the serenity prayer, but it's looking at our lives and seeing what is possible, what is true, what are my strengths, assets, resources, what are the things that I can leverage at this very fraught moment in time. And I think what can happen, you know, we could categorize it as a cognitive distortion we can live in a place as, of shooting and musting or what ifing ourselves to death. So, you know, what if the pandemic hadn't happened, then X, Y, and Z wouldn't be true? Or what if my mom had been more attentive and she had noticed my love for music and encouraged that? Or what if I had a sister that I like spending time with? Or, you know, people do all these kinds of things, the, the what if, or what if I had the chance to go to a better school or if I were 10 pounds lighter or two, two inches taller, right? So there's all these things that we can let rent space in our heads. Mm. Um, the things that maybe we regret um, from the past 
or it might also be stewing in anticipatory anxiety. What if this next person gets elected or this economy collapses further, the interest rate spikes up even more. So we can live in that constant space, which doesn't allow us to be present in the moment, to practice a non-judgmental stance, to appreciate what is true and what is possible and what is good in our lives. Mm. And that's something I'm sure you've seen it as well and in all of your legacy and your work is how human that is for all of us, how hard it is to be in moments of darkness and pain and accept that, um, to also accept moments of beauty and joy and then, you know, see them kind of wash away. Life is not easy. And so Mm -hmm. that radical acceptance and that leveraging of what is true and what is possible is something we can train our brains to be more likely to do. It might not necessarily be automatic, Mm -hmm. but I think that that is a good starting place because I think one of the prevailing themes throughout the pandemic and all that's at hand is a feeling like we we don't have power or control over things. You know, mm. so much had been taken away. Um, and so many countries around the world still are facing such peril and such devastation. And so this is really about looking at what can we cultivate in a given moment? Um, could it just be even a moment of compartmentalization or reprieve? If, say, for example, you're going through significant trauma, can you create five minutes in a day where you're free and you can breathe in a new way. Those are the kinds of um, framings that science shows can really help us through these times of enormity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that what if, you know, it has some value because, you know, we're imagining things or what we want or it can inspire us as well, but it's very easy to get caught up in it. And it also it could be very much a defense that protects us from having to risk anything, you know, to go into the title of your book, that we can just imagine life or we wish it was this way or what if it was that way, rather than looking at what is in front of us and what are the challenges that we we can take control of or do something about. And so I find oftentimes, even with, let's say, relationships, people can imagine dating someone or being with someone and just imagining it is safe because it's just in their imagination rather than facing the reality of dating someone in real life and so i think that's a really important thing to be mindful of is that you can stay stuck in that what if life but you'll miss out on all the what is in front of you and what you can actually create so i thought that distinction was very powerful mm, thank you i really like how you put that and it, it makes me think too about the amplification of social anxiety mm. it was already the fastest growing anxiety spectrum before the pandemic, and I think about how they're framing loneliness as the new smoking, as a health risk. And like to your point, just we can imagine something in our mind's eye, but then to take that next brave step to ask someone, you know, did do they want to spend time with us? Are they interested? And like that fear of rejection can be very paralytic. Mm-hmm. Um, or at work even, let's say there's a lot problematic in a work culture and it's really becoming erosive for us. How do we find voice to self-advocate? And so I think that what if is like, what if it were better, but it's so passive. Mm -hmm. And the message here is to really think about what is possible and how do I leverage that? And how do I enact that in a way that's digestible? That's the whole metaphor of microdosing. It's not like, you know, we can just, you know, just take a whole bunch in and, and, and go on our merry way. We have to do it in a way that's thoughtful 
in a way that doesn't override our system or, you know, completely overstimulate us um, because then, you know, it, that could be too provocative. Yeah. It, too provocative and could make it seem so overwhelming we do nothing. I think that's often what people right. do is that, you know, if they think they have sure. to do something that's so incredibly difficult or all at once, it feels like too much so that they unfortunately do nothing. Um, but, you know, I think that the what if life, unfortunately, social media can really amplify that because we're just exposed to so many what ifs you know what if i looked like this or had this kind of money or had this kind of life and rather than it being some of you know you talk about in the book a healthy comparison i think it leads to these unhealthy comparisons that just kind of freeze us where it's something that's not in our control or we can't change or can't create it for ourselves and we just get frozen and we're we're comparing ourselves to something that's often unrealistic and curated and filtered and all of that uh, which i think is unfortunately reinforcing that staying in the what if but i think that what is is really um what we all actually do have an experience and and, and want to make sure we amplify and as we're looking at the time here we're at a commercial break maybe after the break we can get into some of the the sessions these different sections i especially love uh the chapter um about keg standing risk which we can get into what that means and what that looks like and how that's kind of what we're talking about doesn't seem to work Uh, but after the break we can maybe get into some of those again i'm joined today by dr kristen lee check out her book worth the risk we'll be right back are you still with us there i'm still here wonderful Thank you. Uh, You know, before the break, I was mentioning that uh, we can get into some of these chapters, which are sessions, each one getting into a different aspect of uh, microdosing bravery. And chapter two or section two or session two, sorry, is you are not your keg stands. And so I was I really loved that concept once I, I wrapped my head around it. Could you explain what you mean by that? You're not your keg stands. It's so funny. Like you said, the book just um, hatched a week ago, and so I feel like that's been one of my most fielded questions so mm. far. Like, what's a keg stand? <laughs> so maybe that dated myself a little bit, but I use it as a metaphor because I think again, our society pitches bravery in in ways that are just not attainable and not realistic. So, keg standing is about you know being the center of attention. You know, many have said that they feel extroverts get, like, an enormous amount of praise for their boldness, even though charisma doesn't necessarily equal courage, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so watching out for this keg-standing method of risk, which society tells us, like, you know, be the center of attention, be the brightest, be the smartest, be the strongest, be gritty, be tough, you know, um, just have all this charm, it's these glamorous illusions, I think, are really disillusioning us. And so, you know, I think about, um, in the book I write about um, a case study, um, someone who fell hard for this keg-standing method of risk and had come to me for therapy because this kind of wolf-it-down, macrodosing approach to risk can get us in trouble, right? So, you know, thinking that you have to just take everything on in life with full fervor and little restraint and this per- person I worked with had made and lost a lot of money, gone on a lot of expeditions around the world, but just had a lot of trouble falling through. They were just really chasing that dopamine rush and that high um, just everywhere we turn in society. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened for him, the discovery was that this method was creating an illusion of courage 
but underneath he wasn't really nourishing the kind of courage that's sustainable and that lasts. And so this session is really helping us to rethink risk in a more expansive way, to know that real risk isn't grandiose, and that microdosing bravery, just the, the small swallows of bravery that are minuscule, sometimes people can't see it on the outside, but it's giving us the momentum we need in order to prime ourselves for our own growth and our own social impact. So, yes, thrills are thrilling. Yes, sometimes <laughs> these big moments, they can bring a high, but they can also bring quite a crash as well. So I just wanted folks to kind of rethink what's being sold because these kinds of ideals and paradigms aren't really ideal at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that was such a wonderful way of putting it because... Um, I see the same thing happening where people also, not to just blame everything on social media, but they'll see things that people do and it seems like it's only the super bold, huge gestures that matter, almost no matter what we're talking about. Um, I was thinking about also romance, where people often think romance means mm -hmm. this huge gesture only, you know, where really uh, you look at John Gottman's and others' research, we see that romance tends to be these little moments that you share with your partner of turning towards each other or doing something very small for one another is what builds that romance, that connection and passion. Um, but people are often looking for these huge, um, visible types of signs. And also what you said that you know one person's act of courage might not even be noticeable to others because for them it's something mm -hmm. difficult, but it could be a big deal just to, okay, go up to a group of people you don't know and introduce yourself or you know do something yeah. that seems small and might not be that big of a deal, but can really be a step in the process of creating change. So I think that's a, a great paradigm shift for people to recognize that it's it's going to be the little things consistently that leads to to any kind of change. But when it comes to um, our, you know our resilience and growing, it often is that and not those big risks. And, and I also think when we take those huge risks that can feel overwhelming, they often don't go as well, and they can actually discourage us from stepping out of our comfort zone because it seems that you know things go bad or they don't quite work out so we feel like it's not worth the risk it's not worth taking risks um, but the smaller steps are generally more manageable and also more meaningful so I think that's a, a great you know uh, theme and I think that's one of the themes of the book is to not think it has to be grand gestures it's really the small steps that gets us there right and I think that's key at this moment in time when think of the cumulative effect of all the stress and the trauma everything that we're all grappling with across mm -hmm, societies mm -hmm. right now. And it can, again, it feels like in order to overturn that or make things better, we need to do some kind of massive overhaul. And we know that's not how social change happens and, and rebuilding happens. And that's not how our personal lives work either. I really like how you raise the issue of relationships. Um, this is something I have like a deep fascination, curiosity, around because I feel like when we see, you know, every single thing, it's like, it's a 25th birthday party, it's <laughs> a engagement, it's a gender reveal, like, it's, we're in such a more is more culture, Yeah. and I just, it's just hard, I think, I think, you know, that, and I talk about that, like, that partner that, um, I talk about the commodity complex, mm, this idea, mm -hmm. like, you know, we're disposable, and that, you know, it's about the likes on our feed or the letters after our name or the money in our bank or the Tesla or the red bottom shoes, right? Mm -hmm. And so much of our identity is being constructed around 
even like this this idea on a trophy partner and like yeah. you know you just see sometimes I call it it's my weird brain but I call it wifey propaganda <laughs> <laughs> so what I mean by that is like just that whole thing of like our relationship perfect and they're the wind beneath my mm-hmm. wings and it's all Bette Midler and you're just wondering like is this actually really happening behind the scenes and is it compensation so I do think for all of us it begs our attention to realize what we see isn't what we get. And I think moreover, um, because, you know, obviously, like, we're not saying social media is the devil. Right. But we are saying that there's a lot of trappings that can bait us into risk aversion and paralysis. Or, you know, you brought this up in the last segment, social comparison, and thinking that everyone's life is better and that we're just a hot mess and that we're the only ones that feel a certain way or have certain heartaches. And so I think if we can use um, it as a tool for authentic connection, and we can just be very careful, like what we allow to occupy our attention, um, that's going to really be an important step in resisting this, that, you know, it's just everywhere we turn in the more is more culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm totally with you. Even I've already um, said some negative things about social media, and I really dislike the the binary of is it something good or bad? Are phones good or bad? Is social media good or bad? Where it's really, it can be good, it can be bad, or it has good and bad aspects. Um, but I do think one of the things it has done is it makes us focus on the wrong things. Like you were saying with relationships, uh, often I've had clients who they really acknowledge that when they're thinking of dating someone, one of the things that comes to their mind is how will they look on my feed or how will it look, you know, posting it on social yeah. media. Uh, and, you know, even these hashtags relationship goals, I talk about how, um, you know, a relationship isn't good if it looks good. It's, it's if it feels good to the people in the relationship, not how it looks to people outside of the relationship. But unfortunately, we get really sucked into this vortex of focusing on how it's going to look and how many likes and, you know, reactions we're going to get from our, our relationship even when really it's about how you feel in it. I think that's unfortunately the draw if we're not careful about what we're focusing on and what we're focusing our attention on. I love how you put that. And I think that's something I think about probably every day is that it's better to risk looking foolish or a certain way to other people than feeling bad yourself. And I think this book is that call to action because we can live in that realm of people pleasing and what will, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians or what people (laughs) think. But then in the end, it just becomes a performance. Yeah. And that isn't sustainable, nor is it healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And you were mentioning, you know, some of the feelings that we can get looking at social media. And I think it was Matt Haig in his book, The Comfort Book. He was saying how therapists he talked to said something along the lines of what was almost paradoxical is that one of the most common things this person had experienced was that people would say they feel left out or less than or outside of everyone else. Where It's this funny thing how it's the thing that brings us together is that we all can at times feel left out or not part of the in crowd or whatever that even means. And so unfortunately, yeah, if we, we look at social media, we get this this answer, we feel like that we're, we're somehow not enough, which I think is unfortunate. Um, but we want to try to move away from that, going back to that, what is life that, that you talk about in the book? Um, you know, you also talk about automations. And I think that was interesting for me because 
you know, the brain, we tend to, I, I used to think of it always as a thinking machine, but the more we mm -hmm. study brain science, we now see it's more of a predicting machine. And so we don't even realize yeah. the ways that we are just constantly making predictions about what's happening and what's going to happen around us. Um, and that's why actually I think the microdosing makes the best impact is that it's going to take time to unlearn those automatic ways of thinking and and reacting yeah. and I love that you talk uh, about Lisa Feldman Barrett's research because I think she's wonderful in looking at, at emotions but yeah these kind of automations I thought that was an interesting chapter I don't know any thoughts you have on, on that type of uh, unlearning or changing those um, I'd be happy to hear that well this was a super fun one to write because I started off um, a story when I was in Vancouver presenting at the <laughs> International Conference on Psychology and I was there with some very overzealous cousins. I'm sure they were probably tour guides in another life. <laughs> and they were so eager to take me on the gondola ride, which was yeah. like 1,476 feet above. And I had developed a low-key fear of heights. So mm. just the whole idea going in that, I was like, oh, let's just go get gelato. They've salted caramel <laughs> gelato. Let's just go get gelato. But they pulled me into that experience. And and so I use that story to talk about, for me as a, a person who is not only, you know, a psychotherapist and one who studies human resilience and, and behavior change, and that's really been my life's work is advocating for mental health access and destigmatization. And yet, you know, I wrestle with what I call the worst case scenario brain. You know, mm -hmm. thinking of going up in the gondola, the next thing I know, my mind is flashing forward to my funeral with my daughter <laughs> playing, you know, the piano at my funeral. So, you know, I, I make jest, I use humor and, and use this story to say that so many of us have that automated way, our brain defaults to that worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. It's just, it, it's so quick and it's so automatic. But yet, modern science does show us, again, it's not just a matter of will or like harnessing our rational brain, it's making sure we're investing in ourselves and nourishing in ourselves in ways that help mitigate that quick pattern recognition the brain does. And so, you know, I I, I just want to be mindful. I know we might have a break coming up soon, but no, no, I want anyone out there who's listening that maybe is that people pleaser, perfectionist, overachiever, striver, Someone that knows when I say worst case scenario brain, maybe you're smiling and you're saying, <laughs> oh yeah, that's me. She, you know, did she steal a page from my journal here? Um, you know, just to know that first of all, you're not alone, but you're also not at the mercy of mm. these automations. And I think for myself and my own recovery process, um, it's sometimes slightly entertaining, but also it's been a lot of work to overturn these things mm. that I can encourage anyone that we we have the tools and we have the power to make the changes we need so we're not subject to this constant jarring aspect of our emotion mm. yeah that, that's so well said I'm, and I, i'm glad you put that out there i hope people listening do recognize that and i'm sure many will resonate with that and you mentioned at times even it's entertaining noticing yourself and something in the book itself it's very humorous uh lots of funny stories and anecdotes and the ways you write things add a lot of humor to it, but you also mentioned using humor. Uh, oftentimes, many of the the sections included how you can use humor to help ourselves deal with ourselves. You know, the thing is, when we laugh at ourselves in a not a shaming way, it it's showing that, you know, we can kind of accept, it's, it comes with an acceptance with it as well, because I think 
when we shame ourselves, we're almost afraid to talk about it or we think we have to look down. But if we can laugh in a playful way with ourselves with love, it really can be helpful. And, and life is difficult, and the more we can find the beautiful humor in it, I think it's, it's great. And I think the book does a great job of showing that by being funny and humorous, but also uh, encouraging people to use humor in dealing with whatever it is that they're going through. I thought that was a great touch. Well, thank you. No, it's something that's very important to me. I think it might come as a surprise, you know, obviously the science is in here, and <laughs> I am an academic, and I take my work very seriously, but I also take humor very seriously. I believe yeah. in its power to bring levity, to bring critical thinking to conversations, to bring joy, laughter, connection. And like you said, it could be like through self-depreciation or the telling of our stories. So, um, you know, that's an identity I hold very sacred is, mm -hmm. you know, as an artist, as a performer, as a comedian, um, really being able to use those tools for our own personal healing and to help spur on the healing um, for those who can take part in that with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of humor, also, the, the book is funny, but you can also check out uh, Dr. Kristen Lee's uh, TED Talk. I watched it this morning. It's quite humorous uh -huh. as well. Uh, but let's go to a commercial break. But after we can continue again, Dr. Kristen Lee, her book, Worth the Risk. We'll be right back. Back again, my guest today, Dr. Kristen Lee, author of Worth the Risk, How to Microdose Bravery to Grow Resilience, Connect More, and Offer Yourself to the World. Um, you know, Chris, you're, you you talk about, there's one chapter about um, you are not your accomplishments, which I thought was really powerful. And actually, I resonated with it a lot myself. And you talk about the cult of overachievement. And I thought that could be a, a good place for us to talk because I could definitely relate to that feeling. Um, what do you mean by that, the cult of achievement or cult of overachievement? Well, it's certainly a condition of the hyper-competitive global market and the collapsing economies. Mm -hmm. And it's one in which we are baited to believe that our identity is based on our accomplishments, what we achieve. And, you know, we just spoke um, to some extent around what people think of us. So notions of so-called success are being narrowly defined, and it's happening at an earlier age than ever. So. Mm -hmm. By the time a child loses their first tooth, they should already know which <laughs> top-tier institution they plan to attend. Mm -hmm. By the time they're in third grade, they should be reading three grade levels ahead. And then by the time they're in high school, they should be overloading with 17 AP, AP classes and co-curriculars to make sure that they're you know, on track. And then by the time we're age 20, if we haven't started our own nonprofit or startup company, <laughs> then we're a complete failure. So the cult of overachievement is one that causes us to think that we're human doings, not human beings. Mm. It's very much part of a commodity complex. And it's, it's really, I think, part of why we're experiencing unprecedented burnout. You know, even in 2019, pre-pandemic, the World Health Organization had declared burnout as an occupational risk, a, a risk of modern living, if you will, and a condition of the workforce. And I found this jarring and also shocking, not shocking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it used to be considered like a health condition, and now it's more like this is what our environments are doing to us. Mm 
And I think it's hard. There's a line because for anyone out there who's bright and high achieving and wants to contribute positively in the world, it's exciting. And I know for myself, I was the first in my family to attend college. I went to a state university. Um, I worked four jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think about having these opportunities, this access to education, and the meaning that it's had for me in my life as a professional and as a person. And I don't ever take that for granted. But I think there's a line between, between striving for rigor and excellence and upward mobility than getting ourselves into precarious situations where we think that we're robots or machines or that we have to perform high octane 24 seven. Mm. We're seeing right now serious consequences of that across the world. And I think that this session is an opportunity to realize that our legacy isn't going to be, oh, you know, they answered their email in 0 0.02 <laughs> seconds, or, oh, they had 1,476 followers on their LinkedIn profile. That will never be our human legacy. Mm -hmm. And while, again, our work and our professional identities and what we do brings a tremendous amount of value to our lives, it brings us purpose and oftentimes joy, there is that side to it that can become erosive if we're not conscientious. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think as adults, we, we see it, but starting from such a young age, especially with college admissions the way it is now here in the United States, it's like these kids are being just trained to become these perfect applicants rather than human beings and people. So it's just mm. like you have to have the academics, but the right type of extra, you know, some kind of an instrument, a sport, a leadership. And it's those things can be good things, but not to just tick a box, but to actually, you know, experience them or to, to be, you know, to be them, not to just do them. And I think it's really unfortunate, but I can relate to that, too. I've, I've definitely fallen into that trap of how much am I doing? Is it enough? Um, I think it's kind of funny that if you haven't talked to someone for a while, it's such a common answer to say, oh, I've just been so busy. So busy is the, the right. thing that we're supposed to say no matter what, just to kind of, because we think <laughs> we're supposed to be busy because we're productive and, you know, even could be related to capitalistic type of mindset and the commodity mindset where we are a commodity. But yeah, it can just be so easy to get caught up in that. If I'm, if I'm resting, I'm being lazy. I think you had that in the book somewhere where rest is lazy yeah. and it's just, you know, that's. That's not true at all. We're human. We're biological beings who need rest. It's not lazy or selfish to take, you know, to do self-care and take care of ourselves. Uh, but unfortunately, you can feel that way that you should always be quote unquote productive. So I think that's really important to yeah. to be mindful of that. Indeed, and I think that's something I've had to unlearn and work through too, because I am very enthusiastic as a person, and I mm. love what I do and I, I love like that that rigor and in, in, in the challenge but I think it again it can be a trapping and one thing I've done is just ban that word lazy from my vocabulary mm. like don't say the L word <laughs> and don't use you know the word unproductive because we tend to just be so highly productive and then when we have that shift and we have that reprieve guilt can kind of creep in mm. and have its way with us so I think, um, you know, I frame it that way, and I talk about um, the grueling treadmill club, and I like how you just said it's something, it's not just applicants and college students, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, it's across the lifespan as people, as professionals in this world, 
there's so much that, you know, and I call it the grueling treadmill club. It's like, welcome to the club. You're going to get on this treadmill and crank it up to the highest incl- inclination. Um, the inclination elevation, you know, the highest it can go, right? Mm-hmm. The highest elevation on the fastest speed. And congratulations, you're part of this club, but you can't get off. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to, you know, you're going to be injured or it's, no one talks about the dangers. And I think it's a thing I really worry about um, with kids getting burnt out these mm-hmm. days. Like, I, and I'm not exaggerating. I've heard like kindergartners say where they're going to go to college. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding when I say that. And so I, I think that the worry I have is, guys, you're, you think once you get into the college, you'll breathe. Or you think once you get the job, you'll breathe. And the air will be different and, may, you know, there'll be trade-offs. But if you think you're going to stay locked in this treadmill indefinitely, it will be very damaging. Yeah. And so I just think for all of us, if we can challenge these things, like, you know, leisure is not taboo. We actually mm-hmm. need to rest. Our bodies and minds deserve and need that. Even the idea that everyone must go to college or our worth is equated with our scores or our letters after our name or our titles or our accolades. And then I think the other predominant message is suck it up, Mm -hmm. run and bear it, just keep going, don't let anyone see you sweat unless it's to show off your hot yoga class, (laughs) right? So this club that we're initiated into, it's there is privilege and but there's also this this price that is paid and i think that um another metaphor and acronym that i put in this session was watching out for what i call underperformance dysmorphic disorder mm-hmm. and it's this idea that we're running this hard and we're the most educated advanced accomplished group of society and we still are suffering from an obsessive focus on the perceived faulty belief that we are un- unaccomplished and we're let down and that we're failing miserably even when we're doing the most, mm-hmm. even when they're doing everything that we're doing. And this happens to parents, by the way. Um, parents today spend more time than previous with their kids than previous generations, but there's an enormous amount of guilt. And same thing for students. It's like half of, you know, these institutions of today you have to have an average GPA of over 4.0, a weighted 4.0 something. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it can feel like it's not enough, but all these things that we're chasing after aren't really going to be worth it if we get sick or we're too consumed and we're too oversaturated to actually enjoy them. Yeah. So I think I just want to encourage everyone, especially with the underperformance thing. I, as I speak to C-suite leaders and leaders across the world, um, as part of the work I'm doing to help people reimagine resilience in their work context and to really create psychological safety and create humane work environments, helping people to realize, you know, like answer that question, like how do you strive for rigor and excellence and maximize the opportunities of today and take care of the business, like the realities of the bottom line and like running plate, like like work has to be done mm-hmm. without bringing harm to people's lives, you know? And so I think for all of us, we we have to clarify that within ourselves so that then we can work within our relationships at work and at, at home to set boundaries, to talk about 
what it's like to have these expectations and to be able to renegotiate them. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just such a, a prevalent theme of people doing, like you said, doing the most, doing too much, being overworked and still feel like they're not doing enough. Uh, and it's really yeah. unfortunate that we see that and that L word lazy comes up so often with my clients that uh, we almost always see it's something about anxiety or other things that's holding them from doing something or it's this comparison to some unrealistic standard of productivity. But it's so easy for people to feel lazy, uh, even though it's really mm-hmm. just part of being human that we need breaks. We need to take it, you know, mm-hmm. take that time. And, and that imposter syndrome, I think what's what I find fascinating is it's almost like we, we idealize people so much that then when we're doing something, we think we're still not it because, you know, it's like, well, I'm not a you know, uh, an author, because an author is someone who, whatever it is in our mind, but it's like, well, if you write a book, you're, you're an author if you write in some way. Um, or I'm not a doctor because, you know, medical doctors know everything and I don't know so much. And it's like, no, even those medical doctors you looked up to didn't know everything. You know, whoever it is you look up to, they're still going through things and imperfect, which I think actually part of the antidote to that will be some of what you discuss in the book about being vulnerable. You yourself are vulnerable, sharing your own challenges, struggles, because we often think or we see people present themselves in this way that they've got it all figured out and they don't have any problems or issues. So it makes us always think, because internally we know we're not perfect and we have stuff we're going through that we're somehow not measuring up where we're imposters when it's really that we're all still just struggling and figuring it out, you know? And so I think the more people are vulnerable and open about their own challenges, especially people who achieve some kind of success or notoriety, the more it makes people realize everyone's imperfect and that's okay and that's actually quite beautiful and i think that's a a good movement that we're seeing people being more open but still a lot of work has to be done i think there indeed you know we're at another commercial break maybe we'll we'll get to have you maybe another segment or so if that's okay uh dr Kristen lee again i really hope you'll check out her book it just came out last week uh worth the risk how to microdose bravery to grow resilience connect more and offer yourself to the world We'll be right back. Welcome back again, my guest today, Dr. Kristen Lee, author of Worth the Risk. And Chris, uh, moving ahead in in the book, Session 8 or or Chapter 8, I think is a really important one, uh, an important one for me when it comes to, to stigma of mental illness, and that is you are not your label. So yeah, it might be good to talk about that a bit because I thought that was a very powerful chapter. Um, maybe you could share your thoughts on that, how how you see the labels and you know, labels can be and sometimes even helpful when it makes us understand mm-hmm. a problem, but unfortunately it can be very, um, at times belittling or can make us feel stuck as I think you you quote some uh, that that labels are for jars not humans and so maybe you could share mm-hmm. some of that thought on on how you think that labels can be could get in the way of us microdosing risk or finding our resilience well indeed as you point out labels are paradoxical so they can help us have understanding mm-hmm. you know diagnostic frameworks can be very helpful and beneficial to one's healing process and and recovery, but they can also become internalized identities. And so for me as a resilience researcher, I'm curious and interested in discovering, you know, what leads to resilience and what part of our identities can help or get in the way. And in, in the work that we do, right, we just see, you know, incredible stories of resilience and healing and recovery 
but we also can sometimes see um, someone internalize an idea or a label about themselves that isn't beneficial. So like to color it in, I remember I worked with a patient and they used to constantly say to me, I'm bipolar, I'm bipolar. And I, I remember just turning to them and saying, your name isn't bipolar. Your name is, I won't say the name mm-hmm. for confidentiality's sake, but you're, you're, that's not your name. And I do think that that can be a very pervasive mindset in the realm of mental health. And the other thing is, um, one thing I'm enthralled with is the ongoing, really incredible interventions, the different modalities um, that are available to tap into towards mental health recovery. And while that can be nuanced, like in terms of wait times right now and and a need for more systemic mental health reform, there's a lot that we can tap in towards for healing. But I think it begins with understanding that even though things may be difficult for us, again, for anyone out there, if you also have a lived experience with anxiety, you might wrestle with your sense of self. You might feel embarrassed that you, you know, your minds go so, your your thoughts go so catastrophic so quickly, Mm -hmm. that worst case scenario brain that I had spoken to earlier. And it's really this process of realizing that all the things can be true, that we can be very bright, high achieving, we can be loving, we can be equipped to contribute beautifully in this world. And then we can also have this, these dark struggles. Mm -hmm. They're you know, brain science is now saying we're all likely to vacillate in and out of episodes across our lifetime. Gone are the days, you know, where we used to say it was reserved for someone, you know, that was, you know, um, crazy or, you know, just all those old school labels mm-hmm. that were slapped on people in such damning ways. Um, one example would be the example of Fred Freeze and Ellen Sachs, um, both Uh, with lived experiences of schizophrenia, which has always, as you know, been seen as, you know, a really damning label Mm -hmm. and diagnosis. And their stories of recovery really, you know, as I was doing the research for my book, and uh, I had marked Dr. Fred Freeze um, at a National Alliance on Mental Illness conference, and it was just so incredible. He had convened people around the world who had lived experiences with schizophrenia who went on to recover and then become part of the psychology discipline, the in-helping profession role. Mm. And that was just so, you know, what an incredible legacy to and, and plight to come from, like, the deepest forms of suffering and then to go on to serve in such profound ways. Mm. So I think the message is that we, you know, I want people to think about ways they might move from those ideas of stigmatized, old-school mental health condition framing to human condition, that when we are living in traumatic times and we are dealing with what we're dealing with and facing what we face, we will have proportionate reactions, and then also because of, you know, our chemistry, you know, the biopsychosocial factors, there'll be times when we fall prey to these circumstances in our lives. It's just, it's just our brains and how they work. Mm-hmm. And it's not a moral failing. It's not a lack of will or any of the things that it's been pitched as. It's just part of our shared humanity. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there, there's so much in what you said that I was just so so happy to hear you talk about because I think it's so important um, to begin with. Just like that, the nuance of labeling and how it can be freeing. Or you know, I've even worked with clients where you say, "Oh, that sounds like PTSD," and they're, "Oh, there's a name for it." It makes them feel like, "Okay, it's not just me," or you know, "It's not something just I'm uniquely mm-hmm. going through. It's part of a community, part of the human condition." It can be very nice, and and of course, sometimes labels are used to stigmatize and pathologize individuals and even as a member of the mental health community you know hearing you talk about dr ellen Sachs, for example you know we, we would hear schizophrenia and it was kind of this like life sentence of you're not going to have a good life mm. or you can't contribute much was really what i was felt and taught early in my uh, studies of psychology and then seeing that that's not the case yeah. like anything it exists on a spectrum and there's so many uh, different experiences that people can have um, it can be really important to hear those stories to see that First of all, mental illness is so common. I think, as you mentioned, we have labels yeah. like crazy or this or you know, everyone's got something. You know, we're dealing with stuff. We're just like no one has perfect physical health. No one has perfect uh, mental health. And so just r- acknowledging that and accepting that and being aware of that, um, I-, I think it's itself wonderful to say, OK, I have these these areas that can be challenges for me or things that can come up. Does not make me bad or doesn't make me uh, you know, not good in some way or unlovable or on un- whatever, you know, fill in the blank. It's just part of, of me. Um, and I also recognize as a mental health professional, I think we've done a lot to, I think, stigmatize and pathologize at times throughout history and, and still do. And making sure we're, you know, for myself, I can say speaking on um, destigmatizing and making it that people are going through things and that is okay, um, but not to, to label or judge them in a way. And so I think We've been part of that as the mental health community of unfortunately making people feel bad for sometimes very normal and acceptable things. Um, but hopefully we're moving moving away from that. But yeah, it's just such a common thing to, to go through some dark times or some challenges, even things like suicidal ideation. Sometimes people are shocked to hear that mm-hmm. it's not uncommon for some, you know, many people mm-hmm. to at least for it to cross their mind in some way. So if it does come to mm-hmm. your mind, there's help out there, as you were saying, there's things you can do if you need that but also it doesn't mean something is wrong with you or you're bad in some way if you ever go through that you know life is going to have its ups and downs so i really resonated with that chapter on uh, the labels and, and looking at mental health and informing ourselves but not getting stuck with these labels that can make us feel like something's wrong with us in some way indeed and you know as you pointed out diagnosis can serve as such an important organizing framework, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I think for anyone who's suffered or watched a loved one suffer, having that name put to it can be very cathartic. It can be very helpful and, and a relief ultimately. But I think it's that other piece is that there are so many strengths and so much learning that comes for all of us who have touched with this and have lived experiences. So an example is, um, Many on the bipolar disorder spectrum and continuum have been um, associated with high levels of empathy and creativity and artistry. Mm-hmm. People with ADHD also have been noted as having incredible entrepreneurial abilities and boundless energy. And so I think just those pieces too is a message of this book is when we think back to that what is, is leveraging the strengths. Um, and, and the growth and learning that happen, even as a result of things that inherently seem 
you know, initially so difficult or so hard to overcome. Yeah, yeah, and this this myth of normal, that there's like this normal way of being or, you know, that it even exists out there, a normal human being, um, I think unfortunately it makes us feel like we're, if we're not that, we're abnormal when it's really everyone is different. And, and as you're saying, that actually makes us uh, wonderful to have those different gifts and strengths and uh, inclinations to, to look at things a certain way or another way is what actually allows us to do things together that can be better than any of us doing it on our own. So I think that's a, a very powerful message. Um, moving forward a bit, you touched on this before about loneliness, but session 10 is you are not alone. And I think that's such a big one when we're looking at risks because um, the pandemic really, I think, amplified this, but it's so easy in today's day, age with technology and how we can do so much without interacting that people choose the comfort at times of being alone, but then, of course, pay the price of being alone as well. Uh, so I think that's a big one where those micro, dose, uh, mi- micro doses of risk is really important. But yeah, if you could touch on that, what, what your thoughts are on um, what you see as far as, as loneliness and, and what people can do to to counter that? I think that one of the things I think about constantly is I work with so many amazing students from around the world. So my university, I think, has the highest number of international students around the world um, that studies in Boston, where I teach. And we often have a lot of conversations about what it's like to leave family of origin, community of origin, country of origin, and like to have to kind of just re- you know, star on your own. So I think there's a lot of folks like that make take those very bold risks in their lives mm-hmm. um, to study and to have access and to make the family proud, you know, all those things. And I think it's just something to behold. It's really incredible. That's an incredible act of bravery. That's not a microdose. That's a big <laughs> one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I raise that as, as an example is that, you know, you might not even move across the world, but you might have a different position than someone, you know, where you were raised, or you might not, like, fit, you know, you might break the mold, or you might not want to fit into the tiny boxes that society, um, you know, aspires you to. So I think that loneliness can not just be the absence of people and human contact, which was obviously a major issue over the last few years, Mm -hmm. but it's not feeling seen for your identities as a person it's Mm. like you know if you're if you're different so to speak right and who gets to define that right but um i think that can create a lot of loneliness and then i think again obviously the events of the world and technology can leave you know really impede our sense of connection yeah yeah you know what i would say oh sorry go ahead sorry oh no i just would say to anyone if you feel alone you're not the only one who feels alone i think the data is very clear about loneliness and I think the risk worth taking is really knowing yourself what's important to you what you value owning your strengths and chipping away at reaching out to people maybe it's someone you've lost touch with and it kind of feels a little strange or awkward to to reach out again or maybe just going up to someone and introducing yourself Mm. or asking someone if they'd have coffee or do a zoom call Um, those could be really you know, microdoses that are a little provocative, but they pay off because a lot of people are yearning for that kind of connection. And it sometimes can go missing in this world of busyness and, and strife. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I read the book earlier this year, The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink, and he was talking about people yeah. reaching out after a long time. And, you know, and one of the reasons they often don't is that they say, well, they think it's going to be awkward. You know, I'm, I'm going to reach out and it's going to be awkward. So that kind of anxiety and the awkwardness makes them just avoid it. But then when people actually end up doing it, they find that it's usually way less awkward than they anticipated it was going to be. So, yeah, I hope people right. listening, myself included, will take that step to reach out to someone they haven't for a while and, and realize it's probably going to be less awkward than you think and it's going to be okay. Um, but those are those kind of those those risks. Again, it's not some huge thing that is going to be a movie is going to be made out of the phone call, you know, reaching out to someone. But those are the huge moments that can make a, you know, you might reconnect with someone and it turns into rekindling a connection. And one of the things he found people often regretted was not staying in touch or reaching out to people uh, once they got older right. that they wish they had uh, kept that. So, yeah, it's going to take a lot of micro doses of, of risk to, I think, build new connections, to reconnect with people. Uh, but as you mentioned, that's that's what you're encouraging people to do is to take those small steps, which can turn into big changes in their life. Uh, looking at the time, um, we got to go to commercial break. But if you're OK with it, let's do one more segment after the break. How does that sound? Sounds wonderful. All right. Great. Again, Dr. Kristen Lee, we're talking about her new book, Worth the Risk. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, my guest today, Dr. Kristen Lee, we're talking about her new book, Worth the Risk, How to Microdose Bravery to Grow Resilience, Connect More, and Offer Yourself to the World. Uh, Chris, you know, um, when we were on the break, you mentioned you wanted to get into, I think it's probably relevant to session 12, you're not a passive bystander, but a theme throughout the book, in many of the sessions, it comes up about being there for others, standing up for injustices in the world. And in that chapter, that session, you get into moving towards reverence. So maybe we can transition into talking about that, because I think it's really powerful stuff in that session. That's something that's so important to me as a person. Um, so many times we can see a book come out, and it gives us a lot of ideas around how to heal as individuals. But this really is a book about how do I use that personal growth as a catalyst that helps me facilitate social change. And so I, I think I have a peeve, honestly, like when people, um, you know, if we're talking about like diversity and inclusion, for example, and people, it, it used to initially be taught, like we need to tolerate each other. Sometimes mm -hmm. you'll even see those bumper stickers still hanging around. And, you know, it, it rubs me a certain way because I think, you know, when we think of tolerate, it feels like, okay, you know, we could, tolerate overcooked Brussels sprouts or an app crashing or long lines, but couldn't we do better than yeah. just tolerate each other? You know, that just seems like a very low expectation. And then, you know, other people will say, well, I'll accept you. Let's, let's promote acceptance. And that still has a connotation. Like it sounds like someone's still on a perch. Maybe it's a dominant group that deciding, that they have the best way and that they're just being nice and gracious to accept someone who is quote-unquote different. And so what I advocate for and worth the risk is a new framing. And this is a, re a framing of human reverence. What I mean by that is that we would hold a position of complete awe, respect, gratitude for one another, especially for anyone who has been othered, oppressed, discriminated or violated against because of their social identity affiliation. And 
this is important. I've seen this in my clinical work, my research, as we just look at the needs and the opportunities of the world and the issues at hand. I think that if we could move to away from, you know, mere tolerance or simple acceptance to a place of striving towards reverence, that that can really help us, um, you know, deepen our bonds with each other, help eradicate loneliness, stigma, discrimination. There's so much that I think that can do if we ourselves take agency to appreciate each other in those kinds of ways. Mm. Yeah, that was, you know, I actually hadn't seen it. Tolerance, I'd, I'd read people talk about tolerance being a very low bar, but I hadn't seen moving towards reverence and really having that type of respect and appreciation for every human being, not just for being part of some group, for, for having that appreciation and love. Uh, you know, actually, love is an interesting word as clinicians um, and scientists mm-hmm. were often not supposed to use those kinds of words. I kind of find it funny almost when it's like, okay, to think of loving your clients when it's like, I think, you know, you, you cultivate that feeling of love. Of course, it's how you define it for, for your clients and people you work with, but it's looked at as like this not good word. But um, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that. And, and it's, I think they're interconnected, you know, having that love for yourself and that reverence for yourself tends to make it easier to extend it to others as well. And when you have a hard time loving and accepting yourself and having that reverence for yourself, it makes it harder to, to extend that. So I think it's it's interconnected and interwoven into that whole experience of seeing all people in yourself as a human being with that type of reverence. So I thought that was a really powerful chapter. Mm. I really like how you put that. I think that, that it, it just really captures the essence of this message, right? It's this discovery it's this process of unlearning and getting more comfortable with our own uncomfortable things. And as we do that, we can then be better positioned to, to give and contribute and to liberate um, those that we influence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and related to that, you talk about um, sometimes we have this mindset of like, what is the world going to give me or versus yeah. what do I have to offer the world? And I thought that's really powerful in that shift, not only of what I have control over, but also just that mindset of what we're giving to the world. So maybe we can talk a bit about that, that shift from what what does the world have to give me or to offer me and what do I have to offer the world? Of course, I think that the anxiety at hand, you know, can lead us to this place like we're just clawing our way through life or we're competing or we just, you know, we've got to like push so hard to get what we want. And I think this this piece of writing and and my research has really led me to see it differently and to see it in a way that almost like the JFK, you know, speech Mm -hmm. spinoff, like it's not about like, let's say I want love and I desperately want it. I start thinking, well, what risk do I need to take? It's deeper. It's also, you know, how can I be love? How can Mm -hmm. I be that thing that I want so much? And in that, I think that that can really invite beautiful interactions and just open us up in different ways or if we want healing in the world then how do we begin healing ourselves and and embody that for others to also benefit from so so much research really points to that fact that the ways in which we give and bring impact and legacy in the world end up really having that nourishing benefit for ourselves as well it's a beautiful reciprocal cycle Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so i just want to encourage anyone that's listening don't just yearn or pine or want to go after these things for the sake of, of your own gain, but know that you can then embody them as part of your own identity 
and you know, I, I encourage everyone to think about themselves as being able to be a liberator, you know, to set ourselves free from these things that really hinder mm. our own well-being and, and also human progress. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I often find that when I'm working with couples, this um, mindset that, okay, if you if something's lacking in your relationship or if you want more of it, rather than waiting or hoping that it's going to show up or your partner will we'll put more into it. What can you do to put more of that? So if you want more of a loving relationship, how can right. you be more loving in the relationship? If you want more yes. communication, how can you increase or improve the communication and, and a global scale as well, you know, uh, being the change, so to speak, using that, the Gandhi quote, but making it yeah. part of the world rather than hoping it's going to happen. Um, and it does give us that locus of control that I can do something about it. What can I do rather than hoping and wishing uh, back to that what if versus what is and what can I make change. Um, and when I talk about success, I often think we unfortunately have the formula backwards. People, when we think of successful people, we usually think of the wealthiest people or the most famous people. And it's people that get things or we measure it by what they get. Um, money, fame, all those things. But uh, what I would hope we measure success by is what someone gives to the world. And often those people do give a lot as well, but we, we focus on what they get when we look at who's successful. And so I think each of us hopefully will measure our own success as an individual of what we've given to the world uh, of ourselves and, and changes and whatever it is that we can do. So I really appreciated that type of mindset that you were um, describing there of, of what is it we can offer the world. Thank you. So, you know, as we're, as we're wrapping up, um, you know, the book itself is is a great read, funny, interesting, uh, lots of thought-provoking um, concepts. And also, these each session ends with a type of worksheet where you can reflect and then also take action, which I think is great. So it doesn't just stay in that what-if space. It actually translates into a what-is space. But I really just hope people will give give it a read because we all need this message of taking small steps in our lives to to grow and realizing it is in our in our power and our control so i appreciate you writing this book and i often find it interesting when i'm reading a book that sometimes someone is demonstrating what they're talking about you know it's like meta through what they're talking about so you take risks throughout the book being vulnerable uh sharing things writing a book itself is, is an act of courage and risk to put ourselves out there in that way so i thought that was pretty cool i don't know if you you feel that as you talk about risk and resilience that it's a, a meta type of a thing where you're you're doing it as you're talking about it indeed and then i think you see it everywhere you go it just starts mm -hmm. coming up in conversation and you, you start listening and reading other things it just seems like it's everywhere you turn but i think it's really helped me to grapple with it in new ways, see it in a more expansive way, and then, as you said, just hopefully model that. Because in, in model, like, when it all goes, like, terrible as well, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. like, the law of averages, like, things aren't always glamorous and it's not always romantic, right? So there's times when things work and then there's times we have to go back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's really invited that deeper sense of community. You know, by being so candid, I think, in my public life, it just has invited, I think, much deeper forms of connection and psychological safety for me. So um, that has meant a lot. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. And, and it's and you talk about different, you know, one time you were giving a talk and you actually was one of the first times you really did get more <laughs> vulnerable about what you've been through. And you weren't sure what, what the, the, you know, the reaction, the reception was going to be. And it was so overwhelmingly positive and, and really you spoke even though maybe other people were, weren't going through exactly what you went through, but it made them realize maybe they can talk about 
what they've been through too, you know. So I think that was a, a bold step, and that was a closer to a keg stand, maybe, but it was still, you know, uh, taking a pretty big risk um, when it comes to being courageous. But that was a very cool, cool moment to hear you describe that. And it wasn't that you you were certain it was going to go well, um, but something in you made you feel like, okay, this is it's worth the risk, pun intended, to to go for it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I felt committed, I think. And I think the other thing is it wasn't just like a breakout moment that was random. It was something that I had microdosed along the way and mm-hmm, built up the mm-hmm. the muster towards. And that's the whole key thing is and then it felt like that right time and it felt aligned with my ethos and values as a person. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like when you said that, um, it reminds me when people say someone's like an overnight success when they've been working on it for like 10 years. But so you've been taking small <laughs> steps in that direction, but that was that was a bigger step. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time to write the book, of course, but then also taking the time to join me today to discuss your book. Um, I really hope people will read it. It just came out. And where would you recommend people pick it up? They can pick it up at anywhere uh, anywhere where books are sold, and they yeah. can go to my website, kristenlee.com, and click there. Um, there's some bonus content. Speaking of being what you want to receive, there's some bonus content there, and there's just lots of information um, there. I'd love for folks to connect with me. I'm really not just about a book sale, but much more about relationship and honest community, so um, I'd love to have folks join in in the conversation with me. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you joining the conversation today, and I enjoyed the conversation and and hope to have you back Likewise. on sometime soon. Likewise, thank you so much for all for all you do. It's just it's extraordinary. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you again. Dr. Kristen Lee, check out her new book, Worth the Risk: How to Microdose Bravery to Grow Resilience, Connect More, and Offer Yourself to the World. Dr. Lee, thank you again. Thank you. Have a great day. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, a big thank you to Dr. Kristen Lee for joining me today on the show to discuss her new book, Worth the Risk, um, How to Microdose Bravery to Grow Resilience, Connect More, and Offer Yourself to the World. I also wanted to mention that it is um, part of the next big ideas and books uh, to look out for. I don't know if that's what they call it. Wondering what to read next. These 12 big idea books just came out. So next big idea club mentioned Dr. Lee's book as one of the books to check out, um, and I highly recommend it and hope that you will give it a read. Um, you know, it was supposed to be the book last week because I got COVID last week. It's actually kind of funny. I was reading the last few pages of this book. I kept testing negative. I saw a friend who tested positive, so I was just testing just in case, and um, I did the nose swab, and I was waiting for the test results, reading the last few pages, and I saw the line <laughs> filling in showing that I I was testing positive uh, just the night before we were going to do this interview last week. So I appreciate her being flexible and making it work today. Uh, But this message in the the book about microdosing bravery, I think it's such an important one because we obviously want quick fixes because why not? If something can happen in a shorter amount of time and get the same result, we're all going to want that. And unfortunately, because of that, we seek them out. And then people, as is kind of the case in the marketplace, will create that for us uh, or that the myth for us that they have the solution. And it's so easy. Whatever you're dealing with, just do this and it's going to change forever or be fixed. 
And we all want to buy into that false hope because it feels so good, but it's just that false and not real. Any kind of meaningful, real change is going to be slow. It's going to take some time. Uh, as a therapist, I deal with this all the time. People coming in and, of course, wanting to feel better, hoping to uh, feel better or not have this issue, whatever it is that they're dealing with. And I do have to walk them through the reality that the change is possible. I'm very hopeful of that, but I do believe it will take some time and, and getting them to see that and be prepared for that journey that will take small steps to get there, but you will get there, but be ready for that long journey. And so that to me was a very, very powerful message in this book that we all have to be ready for that, that we can make changes, but it's going to take some time. And that could be good news too, because oftentimes we think that if we're going to make a change, we have to do something really big and huge or else it doesn't matter, or we have to do something that's uh, you know, monumental or else we're not going to get anywhere. But really, it's not about those huge leaps or those keg stands. It's more about the small steps that we're going to take. It, it's kind of like when you start exercising. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I know I have. If I haven't worked out for a while and then I start working out two days in a row, all of a sudden you feel, <laughs> you might feel great, but your body probably hasn't changed almost at all. Um, the feeling you have, I'm sometimes like, okay, maybe I, I should contact Team Mali, they might need a new player for the World Cup. I'm pretty feeling in, in good shape, but really I haven't changed much. And that's usually how things are. It's, you know, it could start to feel a little bit good to take steps in the right direction, but to lead to progress is going to take a lot of time. Um, I mentioned relationships with Dr. Lee when we were speaking, because I see this a lot, where people have a relationship problem, they just want it to be better. And so what I always try to express here is that when we look at your relationship with anyone, the way you feel about someone is the sum total of all your experiences with that person and all the ways they made you feel. And this is why that if you've had a lot of loving experiences with someone, even if they hurt you in some small way, it might hurt, but you'll probably be able to handle it more than if you had just met someone and they did the same thing, you might not want to continue that relationship because there's not as much holding it there. So your relationships are really going to be about this sum total of how you interact with someone, with your loved one, or even with yourself. That means that it's going to be small things that are going to affect it, not it's going to take some big thing to make it better. Now, here's the sad part. Oftentimes, damage can happen quickly, but growth takes time, which is unfortunate. So same thing in a relationship. Someone can do some huge betrayal that might actually damage the relationship significantly, even lead to it not recovering, unfortunately. That can happen. But to build a relationship or to build trust and strength takes time. It takes small steps to get there. Just like with your body, I was talking about exercising. If you want to get in good shape or build some muscles, it's going to take some time. Very small steps. Micro doses actually is kind of uh, fitting. When you lift weights, we talk about micro tears in the muscle that then get repaired and make the muscle stronger or bigger. So it's actually these micro tears that happen. If you have some big tears, that's what we look at as the damage or the negative things that can happen that can happen very quickly. One bad rep too much weight or if you're too exhausted and the muscle can't take it you might have a huge tear or hurt some other part of your body so this is a unfortunate reality of life that often 
negative things or damage can happen quite quickly and even be catastrophic, even if we take it to an extreme death, can happen very quickly. But building health happens in small steps and will take time and even isn't going to be perfect, but can happen. So that is an unfortunate reality that I think we have to accept is that damaging tends to be easier than building. And this is actually why people do it in, in life, too. If someone wants to get a lot of attention, it's a lot easier to go mess something up than to create something good. You can go do some kind of a, you know damaging a building or uh, damaging some art or, uh, you know, um, hurting somebody, even things like assassination. You, you get a lot of attention and you might get a spotlight. Very sadly, things like mass shootings, you get a lot of attention unfortunately because of things like that and you're just damaging and it's very easy much easier to get that than to get that type of attention for doing something good and the book touches on this very well um, we don't want to make that our focus the attention you're going to get the likes you're going to get we don't want that to be our our driving force we want to be driven more by values and doing good things but even in doing good things it's always going to be harder to um help someone or do good than it is to hurt someone or do bad things. And I think that's a reality we have to accept. You want to help a child, love education, it takes small steps to make them recognize the beauty in learning and how they can feel good about it and how it feels good to, to do those things. Uh, but it can be very easy to make them dislike going to school by being really harsh with them and mean, even a few moments might take that away. So I'm encouraging everyone to hopefully read the book, Worth the Risk, by Dr. Kristen Lee, and to take that to heart, that whatever you see in yourself, first of all, love and accept who you are today. That word acceptance is uh, a paradoxical one, I think, for many people, because when we hear or even hear me say, accept yourself, at times people think that means resignation or no longer trying to grow. That if you accept it, that means you're just resigning to it. But you can love and accept something as it is, but also be hopeful for it to grow. So going back to my example of a young child in education, a child comes to you that's six years old and you see that they can add well, but they can't subtract very well or they have a hard time with that. And you can love and accept them for what they can do and accept it that they can do this and can't do that while still having hope and encouraging them to grow to do better, to do more when it comes to math. So you accept it, but you're also encouraging them to grow. I have a cup of water in front of me. It's not exactly half full or empty, but people often ask when you look at a glass, is it half full or half empty? And I always think the good answer is both, that you're grateful for what's there, the half full part. You can recognize that and appreciate that and love that but can also see that there's room to grow. There is more that could be filled in that cup. So it's not all or nothing one way or the other, but we can love what's there, be grateful for what's there, but also recognize that there is room to grow. There can be something better. So you love your child uh, for who they are and what they are now with the hope that they're going to continue to grow. And you can have that same love for yourself. Love yourself as you are today. You are lovable, acceptable as you are. And at the same time, you have room to grow and 
also can even appreciate that you have that and something to look forward to and something to strive towards. And lastly, to recognize that you can want better, want more for yourself while loving and accepting yourself, but realizing that it's going to take many, many small steps to get there, many small steps for you to grow in that way. And you know, it's interesting, if you listen to my show Monday, I shared a new sign-off for myself uh, for the shows, which is Be Kind and Take Risks. And I'm sure the fact that I'd read this book, Worth the Risk, was on my mind. Um, It also came to me watching a special of someone who passed away, a comedy special, and how they wanted to share more of themselves and take this type of comedic or creative risk before they died, not knowing how much time they have. And also we're very kind to loved ones as often as the case when people know they're dying. It's interesting how it can put things in perspective and we tend to be more loving and kind. Uh, And I think that's something that we all can do. We don't have to have some type of specific illness that we're dealing with. And I say specific because life itself (laughs) is a death sentence. We all know that none of us get out of this alive. It's it's life, but that means there's going to be death. And so even if we don't know that we have this illness that will likely take our life shortly or in a short amount of time. We don't know how much time we do have. We do know that it will end. So I think we can always look to some of those examples of people who reflect on life because they're facing their death very clearly and with full force in front of their face. What are the things they experience? And one of them is being more loving and kind to others and also wishing they had taken more risks, tried more things not worried about what people would think and went for it anyway all things that are easier said than done but all that we are capable of and all of them that tend to take small risks to take those chances to build that resilience to keep taking bigger and bigger risks and growing in those ways so this book worth the risk by dr kristen lee does a great job of explaining different aspects of taking risks and being resilient what it looks like in different parts of life um Each chapter, which is presented as a session, goes through different thinking points, but then at the end has a type of worksheet where you reflect on yourself, because first you have to understand yourself before you can make a change or or know what to do, but then action steps as well that we can all take to make small steps towards something better for ourselves, loving and accepting ourselves as we are, but always wishing and trying to create more as well. So again, a big thank you to Dr. Kristen Lee for joining me on the show today to discuss the book. I hope you will check her book out. And also a big thank you to Batis here in the studio, who is with me on my Wednesday shows as of late and giving you my my new sign off. Let me know what you think about it. Um, But I'll be with you again uh, Monday night to talk about the next book and get into some more topics. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.